Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. We can't see around all of the corners ahead, but we have to make decisions that may not be popular in the moment with everyone. We have to make decisions that stand the test of time. For business to succeed, we need a climate. And that climate can't just be one that's conducive to commerce. It has to be conducive to people. It's important to have things that we care about, you know, fairness, decency, morality, civility. My view of it is that we citizens, including business leaders, have an obligation to do something about it. That's Ken Frazier, chairman and former CEO of pharma giant Merck and chair of health assurances at VC firm General Catalyst, and Hayden Brown, CEO of the pioneering job platform Upwork, both live from the Masters of Scale Summit in San Francisco. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Ken and Hayden because the pair share compelling insights about the responsibility of business leaders today and how to prioritize principles during moments of business pressure. From Russia boycotts to economic dislocation, they talk about making sacrifices to stay true to your company's values. Plus, we hear from two special guests, a board member from Peloton and an entrepreneur from Kyiv, Ukraine, who pose questions to Ken and Hayden about their strategic challenges. Here's today's episode. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news, that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision, and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. Please welcome Ken Frazier up to the stage. 
Ken. Thanks for joining us. So you've guided businesses through a lot of cycles, 9-11, the Great Recession, pandemic now. When you and I have talked previously about rapid responses, you focused on following principles that, you know, when you're under pressure, it's important to do the right thing. And I wonder, what does doing the right thing mean, especially in situations that are all new? So I'd start by saying that I don't know what the right thing is all the time. And I think one of the most important lessons that leaders can learn going through this kind of upheaval is that the old-fashioned concept of top-down decision-making just does not work. Mm. So, you know, usually people think that CEOs have to be quick and decisive. When the pandemic hit, I thought that was exactly the wrong way to approach it. We needed to be much more reflective, much more empathetic. We had to become much better listeners. And we needed to empower our people to make the decisions that were necessary for our business and importantly for their own lives, since there was no longer a stark difference between work and people's personal lives. Mm. I mean, there is the stereotype of a CEO that's like, I, I may be wrong, but I'm never in doubt. But what you're saying is like, sometimes you have to know when you have to listen. Absolutely. You know, for example, we're talking about working and people coming back to work. And we have 70% of our employees weren't able to work from home. We make life-saving medicines. So back there in March 2020, we had our production workers and our researchers working all the time. You know, I'm very proud of the fact that during that period of time, what we call our line item fill rate, which is the amount of orders that were filled completely and on time, it actually went up mm. during that period. It's because people were dedicated to the purpose of the company. You and I talked also about after George Floyd was murdered in, in 2020, which you've described as you know, a turning point, as many other people have. You and your friend and, and colleague, Ken Chenault, launched 110, which is a, a business coalition, if I have this right, to create a million family-sustaining jobs for black Americans. Who lack a four-year degree. That's important. In, in that moment, you chose to lean into very business economic things, even though it was a, a social upheaval, a social moment. Why do you believe that business has to act on social issues like this? On the 110 issue, when you look at our country, we have like 11 million open jobs. And the fact of the matter is, if we take a skills-first approach rather than a credentials-based approach, we can train and develop people to have those kinds of family-sustaining jobs. But to answer your question about business people and social issues, my own personal view of it is that most of my CEO colleagues don't want to get involved in political disputes. But it is also equally clear that for business to succeed, we need a climate. And that climate can't just be one that's conducive to business and commerce. It has to be conducive to people. And that climate includes certain things that we sort of say are intrinsic to our country right? So let's say, you know, it's important to have the consistent rule of law. It's important to have a democracy where people can vote. It's important to have fairness, impartial justice, equal opportunity. All of those things are things that we care about, you know, fairness, decency, morality, civility. My view of it is that when government abandons or fails in those basic responsibilities, we citizens 
including business leaders, have an obligation to do something about it. And for the, for the business leaders that are out here, like if they, there's a social issue or something that's come up, but they're worried like, well, I may not make as much money. I'm going to alienate some potential clients, some potential customers. My board might be upset about it. Like, what's the answer to tell them about when you have that, you know, that conflict? Well, so first of all, I don't think business people need to speak on every social issue. I want to be very clear. You need to ask yourself, is this an issue that's important to your company's values? Have you earned the right to speak to it? Mm. So, for example, an issue that I care very much about is health disparities. I work in a company that does cutting-edge research. We're thrilled that we've sequenced the human genome. But the reality of the world is your zip code is more determinative of your health than your genetic code is. Mm. And I think that a company like Merck that spends the time and effort to work on developing better health care ought to be focused not only on developing the next treatment for the people who can afford it, we have to think about healthcare for those people who live in those zip codes. One of the things about the pandemic is it laid bare a problem that we've had. Talk about problems that are in plain sight. Income inequality has been in plain sight in this country for 50 years. Since the 70s, we've seen a huge divergence between worker productivity and worker wages. And so, you know, when we were looking at those very dark images up there, it was tough for us. But the reality of the world is, for many Americans, there was tragic loss, loss of life, loss of any economic security. And I believe that leadership has to be equitable leadership going forward. If we're going to rebuild our society, if we're going to rebuild our country, we have to rebuild it in a way that actually works for all of our people, not just our narrow business interests. Ken, you uh, are on the board, lead director at ExxonMobil when Russia invaded Ukraine. So you were pushing them to sort of suspend operations and, and pull out of Russia. And I want to ask you a little bit about that. But we have another guest that maybe I'll bring up at the same time, if that's okay, okay. who has been in the front lines of dealing with difficult decisions around Ukraine. She's a CEO who leads the global workforce platform Upwork. So if we can please welcome Hayden Brown to come join us up here also. Thanks, Hayden. Thanks for having me. I know I want to ask you about Ukraine and have you both talk a little bit about your perspective and how businesses should react to it. But I, I want to ask you first, you took over as CEO of Upwork just as the pandemic hit, when we were all transformed work habits in ways that kind of reinforced Upwork's model. So kind of tough times as good times, you know, ironically. I mean, there must have been a strange start and an unexpected twist maybe to your plans coming in. Absolutely. I've been at the company for 11 years, but stepped into the CEO role right as the pandemic was about to begin. And definitely, I've only known, you know, leading the company through basically a series of crises. But we have our mission, which is to create economic opportunities so people have better lives. We have leaned into that mission every step of the way. And really, as the pandemic was descending, it felt like we were a business that was built for this moment because our entire platform is about connecting talent all over the world with work opportunities that they can do remotely. And so as March and April of 2020 were happening, we looked around and said, how can we help? How can we do more with our platform to bring work opportunities to people where they are and also help businesses figure out 
how to do this because obviously we are experts at this and many were calling us saying, what do I do? I didn't know how to do remote work and now I'm suddenly doing that with my entire operation overnight. So it was a transformational time, certainly. And now I think the way that, you know, 70 plus percent of businesses have said remote work is here to stay as part of their core strategy, that really sets the stage, I think, for us and our business continuing to help businesses kind of through this next chapter. Mm. So you get through the first bit of being CEO at this company and pandemic, and then Russia invades Ukraine, and you're faced with a new conundrum because a lot of your market is in Russia and Belarus. You have this question, do you join the boycotts or not? And there are users, if I understand it right, that were kind of pleading with you not to boycott, not to shut down. Yes, 10% of our business and our customers were in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And so this was a core issue for us. Our own talent also, 10% of our own team was on the ground in those three markets. And so we were getting lobbying on both sides. And this was something that, you know, cut to the roots of our business. We've had these teams there since the beginning, and it was an incredibly difficult decision. We weighed this uh, decision, looking at the customer issues, looking at the operational realities. Could we pay people in those regions ongoingly? Would there be cybersecurity issues? You know, electricity being ongoing. Uh, Would customers want to continue to transact, and would they be able to? So we had to make some really difficult decisions. I think your comments about making swift decisions in some cases, and then also weighing and moving carefully and slowly, you know, as you did in the pandemic, was how we were operating as well. So we moved quickly to pay our own talent in the region a month's wages in advance so that they could actually buy food, water, gasoline. We made the decision ultimately that we would have to suspend our operations in Russia and Belarus. And that was due to both operational concerns and frankly, moral concerns. We looked at both of those and concluded we would do a full-scale suspension in both of those markets after having taken a lot of care and consideration and having actually supported the evacuation of team members who were able to leave the region, which was a key concern. And as I understand it, your business out of Ukraine grew, right? It did. And this was really the silver lining. I mean, these things have been obviously horrific to see in terms of what this war has done. But we launched some new products that actually supported people being able to make free donations to Ukrainian talent on the ground there. And the silver lining has been Ukrainians were able to take their work on our platform with them wherever they went in the country as they were moving to safer zones. And also because so much of the Ukrainian economy was getting hammered with jobs disappearing locally in the ground, what we saw was Ukrainians working on our platform were actually supporting their entire community and pods of family and friends because our work was a lifeline for them and their families. So there was actually an increase to kind of peak levels of Ukrainian engagement and employment through Upwork throughout this period, and that has continued to this day. Can, I mean, ExxonMobil had billions of dollars yes. invested, and you were encouraging of the decision to yeah. pull out, even though those resources were going to be put at risk. Yeah, well, you know, there's no use in having principle if you're not going to exercise it because it costs you something. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very proud of the management and my former board members at Exxon. You know, Exxon's installation at Sockland One in the North Pacific was the single largest outside investment in all of Russia. And we all know that the oil and gas that was being produced there was funding directly Putin's war machine. And so Exxon pulled out. Russia's providing no compensation for taking over those facilities, but it was the right thing to do. Merck, we have a different issue. We've pulled out except for vital, underscored vital medicines, because, for example, if people have cancer in Russia, we've don't feel morally 
that we can make a decision that we know with certainty will extinguish a patient's life, mm. but we don't provide comfort medicines. Uh, I think history will judge people harshly if they aid and abet Putin. And I, I'm very proud of the business community for pulling out. You gave an analogy at one point about your father and his work at UPS and that making the right choices was, was sort of something that you harked back on in making this decision? In the early 60s when my father was working at UPS, UPS made a decision then not to have segregated units in the South, washrooms, facilities. Today, I think we all pretend that we would have had the guts to have made that decision. Mm -hmm. But in reality, we're facing those decisions right now. Our society is unraveling, and I think business has a really important role to play. I'll just say very quickly, we all live in enclaves of people like ourselves. Uh, our children, therefore, go to school with children that are the children of people like us. We go to mosque and synagogue and church with people that are like us. We consume media with people who agree with us. I believe business is the last place in this country where you can't necessarily choose who you associate and you work with. And we have to be leaders. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just, like, share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was, like, sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, we heard the former CEO of Merck, Ken Frazier, and the CEO of Upwork, Hayden Brown, live at the Masters of Scale Summit talking about making hard decisions as a leader and the impact business can have on wider culture. Now we hear from two special guests from the Summit audience, Kyiv-based entrepreneur Alona Misko, who shares her experience running a company amid bombing raids, and Peloton board director Jonathan Mildenhall, discussing the company's roller coaster journey. Hayden and Ken offer their advice about planning in a crisis and the ideal relationship between a board and a CEO. Plus, their final thoughts about the future of work and what Ken calls meeting human needs. There's someone in the audience who I want to uh, recognize, if you'll, if you'll let me. Her name is Ilona Misko, and she is an entrepreneur who came here from Kyiv. She runs a business called Fuel Finance. She's right here. She runs her business out of, uh, sometimes out of a, a bomb shelter. A uh, missile landed about 400 meters from her apartment last week. So thank you for joining us here. I'm curious how rapid response feels for entrepreneurs in Ukraine right now. 
Uh, first of all, I think that uh, we have joked with Ukrainian entrepreneurs that we will be the best risk managers in the world after that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's funny, but on the other hand, it's really challenging. But you will not see Ukrainian entrepreneurs crying. So because we're all fighters, and uh, I believe that we understand that crying is not the way we will support our country. And uh, we understand that our battlefield today is... Ukrainian economy, okay, we should fight, we should pay taxes, we should pay salaries, and we simply should do our best now because it's our battlefield. We're working from bomb shelters, we plan meetings <laughs> for the day when there was explosion, but on the other hand, we're still growing, we're still operating, support each other, and uh, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for stop working with Russia and uh, for us, it's very important. So, and we feel that support from all companies. We appreciate it a lot. Yeah, also, I have a question. So, we live in this crisis. We have this problem. And sometimes it's very complicated to think about planning and for how far ahead we should plan. So, what do you think about that? Thank you. Thank you, first of all. And thank you for being here and sharing those comments. I think... You know, first of all, as we've gone through so many of these crises, and this one in particular, which has caused us to see that navigating any crisis like this is a moment when we can either create strength in our cultural fabrics or tear it apart inside of our companies, and especially in companies where we have Ukrainians as part of our communities. So as we think about planning and navigating these kinds of crises, we can't see around all of the corners ahead, but I think to kind of what Ken, you were saying, we have to make decisions that stand the test of time. And while we can't plan for all the eventualities, we have to make decisions that may not be popular in the moment with everyone, but certainly give our employees, our customers, our shareholders visibility into what we're going to do. Here's our decision framework. Here's how we're approaching this problem or this opportunity in the crisis. And here's what you can expect from us. And I think that's what you have to do in these situations. Thank you. There's a, another audience member who I'm going to pester here. This is Jonathan Millenhall, who's the former CMO of, uh, of Airbnb and the founder of 21st Century Brand. He's also a board member at GoFundMe, at Fanatics, and most importantly for this question, at Peloton. Now, there, there are a lot of businesses that have dealt with whipsawing demand over the last two years, none more maybe publicly than Peloton. Can you Share with us anything about how you think about what rapid response has been required. Yeah, of course. Peloton will go down as one of the uh, case stories of pre-pandemic success, then pandemic boom, and then having to right-size the business as we're coming out of pandemic. And so the first leadership team during the pandemic were making so many decisions, strategic decisions, to meet demand. And that demand was an expectation from employees, shareholders, and ultimately customers. But then as the demand fell back, we've got a new leadership team coming in, and we're looking at some of the decisions that were made by the previous leadership mm. team. And now we have to think about how do we undo some of those decisions so we can write the cost base for the business. And for Peloton, it's going to be much more about being able to be very, very nimble and have a variable cost base that can meet some of the demands that are impacted by all of the big themes that every business has been affected by. Because some of the decisions early on 
when there was growth, was not necessarily emphasizing variable cost base because it was more expensive. That's exactly right. So when you're making some long-term commitments to try and own more of your supply chain and more of the manufacturing processes, you're actually embedding long-term cost into the business, which now the Peloton business needs to unwind from. Do you have a question you want to ask? Yeah, uh, Ken, you've uh, served as CEO and a board member. And during times of crisis, I'd be very interested in what do you expect as a CEO from your board? And also, what do you expect from the board to the CEO and the leadership team during times of crisis? So I think there's a real benefit to having frequent interactions with your board. I think I was very fortunate to have a board that was full of very different, diverse people with different experiences. And the more we talked during that period, the more input I got, the more they understood what management was contending with. So for me, it's the transparency, it's the openness. It's like I was saying with the employees. It's understanding their needs, our investors' needs, our employees' needs, and being able to talk about those things on a regular basis. So we've covered some of the ground that we've had to deal with in the last two years. The one thing I want to ask you about very quickly is the future of work. You're both experts in this from different experiences. Can you share a brief assessment about what you think has happened and where we're moving? The world woke up during the pandemic to the fact that Remote work is possible, and in a world of remote work, we've got to stop actually talking about where the work is happening, because that's really about who. When you blow out the doors on where the work can happen, and it doesn't have to all be in the office or in your local region, and you can start to bring other workers with different demographic backgrounds, different skill sets, all kinds of attributes into your workforce, that completely changes the game. It helps you solve diversity challenges. It helps you solve skill set challenges. And when you focus on who and how the work is happening, that is really the challenge and the opportunity that we have to really redesign work to be better for businesses and better for talent. Stop talking about where. Start talking about who and how the work is happening. As you're giving that answer, I'm thinking, Ken, about what you said earlier about like there's more diversity, but how do you bring that diversity together, right? And not just remote. Yeah, I think that's a big challenge. I think, first of all, people are skeptical about institutions, whether they're talking about governmental institutions or business institutions. I think it's not just about where people work. It's about how do we meet humans' needs? I'm very worried about our society unraveling right now, and we see it around the world. Well, that's the exhortation to all of you out there that we've got to, you know, take this responsibility and this mantle and create the future that we want, not just for ourselves and for our bank accounts and for our investors, but for our world. I want to thank you both for, uh, for joining us and thanks very much. What I take away from this incredible dialogue is how important our choices are as business leaders. As Ken Frazier says, we don't always know what doing the right thing is all the time, but by prioritizing principles in moments of pressure and uncertainty, whether that's war, pandemic, social unrest, or economic dislocation, our choices become clarified. We need to remain mindful of our cultural impact and recognize that in the long run, that lens may be the most critical element in driving our scale journey. I'm Bob Safian. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. 
She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing, and the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans, and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we are at stage gates, so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. I'm Bob Safian, your host and Masters of Scale's editor-at-large. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Chris McLeod. Our chief content officer and interim president is Lori Hoffman. Our producers are Chris Gauthier, Masha Matonina, Adam Skuse, Alex Morris, and Tucker Ligurski. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music by Eduardo Rivera, Ryan Holiday, and Daniel Nissenbaum. Sound design and audio editing by Liam Jenkins and Tim Lou Lee. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Aria Finger, Saida Sapieva, Jodine Dorsey, Alfonso Bravo, Colin Howarth, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Sammy Aputa, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tartar, Luisa Velez, Justin Winslow, Nikki Williams, Chineme Azuquena, Mariel Carricker, and Katie Blazing. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and to subscribe to our email newsletter. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership. <laughs>